From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. Before we get started with today's episode, I'd like to talk to you about Dryject Services that offers unique soil management tactics not available in a single machine. Science has demonstrated the benefit of water injection cultivation and sand channel injection offers a unique opportunity to break through any restricting layers in your soil profile. It's a flexible and affordable service available throughout the U.S. and used by many of the great golf courses. I have personally seen the value of this practice, and now with the ability to inject non-dried sand and at several depths, it offers even more advantages. Contact your local Dryject services representative or visit dryject.com. It's time for a deep dive into what we as an industry call wetting agents, the EPA calls surfactants or inert ingredients, and lots of folks call holders, strippers, leachers, and retainers. And therein lies the nature of our confusion with the chemicals we call wetting agents and the ones that we use to assist with water management. Joining me on this deep dive... I'm Glenn O'Bear, and I'm the Director of uh, Research Development and Innovation at Exacto Incorporated. Exacto is a private label adjuvant and wetting agent manufacturer, and uh, we work across the whole United States. Welcome to Frankly Speaking. So let's get right into it. You and I spent some time at a Wisconsin Turf Association coffee hour. I think Coke was down in beers uh, while we were having the conversation. (laughs) But all all kidding aside, it was really, uh, I love those because it's a collection of uh, really smart folk that allow me to try to ask good questions. And I figure I'm a hell of a lot better at asking questions sometimes than I am at answering them, which I don't know if it makes me a good extension specialist or not. But Glenn, let's get right into the wedding agent discussion that we started and I poked around in in that meeting last month that you can get on the WTA website, download the conversation there. Let's start with my just general inquisition about wedding agents and naming them and surfactants. And so let's, everybody's got to put the snorkel on because this is going to be a deep dive, maybe a scuba outfit, depends how deep we decide to go, Glenn. Let's start with what we call these things. I see wedding agents is the term we use, but I think technically we call them soil surfactants. So let's start there. What do we call this? Yeah, I think you're hitting on a, a very prominent issue that there is not a solid set of standards for how we should name these things. And so you hear a lot of words that kind of mean the same thing, soil surfactant, soil wetting agent, soil wetter. We hear words like penetrant versus retainer. The issue is that those are just descriptions of a product, but they're not regulated. And there's not a standard that says, if I call this a soil penetrant, it means this. That just doesn't exist. And so today there are not good enough definitions to differentiate all those terms. Okay. So I think that's, that's why we all feel confused when we look across the label landscape and see so many different types of products. So the EPA's Code of Federal Regulation that governs this space of, you know, how we label things, what are the technical terms that these things currently live under, whether it's something that the ASTM people started up or the EPA puts in the federal regulations? Let's start right there. Is there an accepted chemical term that we've sort of said, well, they're wetting agents because they wet things? Is there a technical term we should use? Yeah, so at the highest level, the EPA looks at pesticides, and that's active ingredients. That's one whole specific area. Mm -hmm. And then everything else would be an inert ingredient that could be mixed with an active ingredient. And so at that regulatory level, 
adjuvants and wetting agents and all the other things that are not pesticides fall into this inert ingredient category. All of those materials are regulated under the EPA's 40 CFR list, where they look at whether it can be put on food crops or not, things like that. And then we step down further. So wetting agents are regulated as soil amendments, and that's the category that they fall into. That's regulated at the state level, not the national level. And soil amendments are regulated by 37 out of the 50 states. But then the standards for those 37 states also varies broadly. So there's a subset of maybe seven to nine of those states that are really stringent and they they require data to back up the claims. Some of them have really specific ways that they want you to write the labels, to list out the active ingredients. Some states don't require anything. And so there's a pretty broad range of regulatory requirements across the United States. Let's start there because you did a nice job in your article that's posted on the company website that actually is referencing this conversation, which is part of the reason we're having this conversation, that said therein lies some quality control that a superintendent can use, which is, you know, there's 37 out of 50 states that require you to show something. So if you're registered nationally, you got to assume you jump through those 37 hoops. But let's talk about the hoops. As somebody that has to get this done or be involved in getting this done, at the level you have to get it done as a soil amendment, what are the states or things that they test for that you think would give a superintendent or any turf grass manager some confidence that this is actually scientifically backed claims? And we'll get into the labeling issue in a second, but just from this regulatory perspective, are there particular tests that are done to get these things labeled in states that you like the best? Well, so there's a handful of states that, that immediately come to mind, and I'm probably going to miss some that would fall into this category too, but some examples would be California, and I think everybody points to that one first. That process takes about six months minimum, and they review the whole submission package. You have to have efficacy data to back up every label claim. So California is, is a big one. And then other states, uh, Illinois is one of them, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Oregon. Uh, those are some examples of states that are more stringent. So let's get to the efficacy part. So partly what you're telling me is California is at a a list of states that require some efficacy. So if you have a product labeled in California, a lot of guys managing water in California very carefully, I would imagine. This is good to know that your state is doing some efficacy work, but let's peel back the curtain a little bit. How would you characterize that efficacy work? So the efficacy work consists of replicated research trials. So the types of trials that we see people like you, Frank, and and professors presenting at conferences, uh, the trials have to be randomized, replicated with statistical analysis to show that whatever claim I'm making on the label, let's say I'm saying reduces localized dry spot, uh, which is a really common one that a lot of these products do. That means I have to submit that with trial data from multiple locations that shows that we statistically decreased localized dry spot in those studies. Okay. And California, for example, requires data in California-like conditions. So in theory, I couldn't use data from Wisconsin and submit it to California. The, the good thing is that with all these states across the country that have similar requirements, as a company, when we develop a wetting agent, our strategy is to place those trials across the United States, across a broad range of turf species, climatic conditions. And so I, I think... That kind of keeps everybody honest and it it keeps all the development focused in the right areas so that you know you're getting a good product at the end of the day, even if you're not in California. A product that was developed across all those states and passed, jumped through those 37 hoops, 
Uh, if they have one label that worked for all those hoops or they don't have 37 different labels, I'm saying, you can be reasonably confident that even if you're in Nevada or Florida, that that product has been vetted pretty well and those claims can be trusted. It's interesting to hear you talk about it like this, because as a person who spent his life around the pesticide world, not so much in the wedding agent world, it's not as stringent as going through the registration process through FIFRA. But it does have, for these states anyway, because the federal government has probably said, hey, states have different soils. This is a soil amendment. Why don't you figure out if it works on your soils? I'm assuming that's part of the logic behind not having a federal uh, thing about this. Is there any talk about doing this? I know that you you mentioned in your article the, the push to do it at the ASTM level to at least set some scientific standards that regardless of who administers them, those things are there. So talk a little bit about those standards that can be set by ASTM. Yeah, so ASTM is the American Society for Testing and Materials. And there is precedent for the work they've done in, in the adjuvant space and also with pesticides. They have subcommittees, they have experts in those areas. They have gone and, and defined the terms that we use. So with adjuvants, you know, there's all different descriptors, crop oil concentrate, methylated seed oil. So if I'm going to call something a COC or an HSOC, these terms, there are very specific definitions of what has to be in that product to qualify as that material. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, where we see the opportunity with wetting agents is um, there's a subcommittee on uh, soil and rock, uh, the D18 committee. And uh, there is interest in that group to get together and bring in experts who have studied this, you know, these types of products for a long time, and also bring in input from the community and from end users, from superintendents, and put that all together to try to clear up this confusion that we're feeling. So at the end of all this process, hopefully we'll have a really clear path laid out where you say, to be a soil wetting agent, here's what the product must look like in composition, to be called a penetrant, if, if that's a word that we end up using in the future, then there's a clear set of, of efficacy data that backs that up and shows so the word penetrant is kind of qualitative, like I think it penetrates better, but the a better term might be it increases saturated hydraulic conductivity, something that's really measurable, quantifiable. I think that's where we need to get to as an industry is is actually talking about the analytical method that we use and the, the results of that test instead of just penetrant versus retainer. Well, that's you know? right. And a lot of our studies are looking at, I watered less. How much irrigation did you use? You mentioned scientists that have sort of help do this. And, you know, Fidanza and Casca come to mind, Cal Bigelow, Johnny Cesar for many years. The whole study of soil water repellency is fascinating. But even with all that science, Glenn, a superintendent picks up a package, looks at the label, and it doesn't, other than maybe the state and the labeling stuff, it doesn't tell them the ingredients clearly on the label. What's with that? I can't answer for other companies, but I'll say for our company, our, our approach is always to submit it to that handful of states we talked about earlier, like California, Oregon, uh, Minnesota is another one. Those states often tell us how to write that label. So I, I'll go write it the, well, what we think is the right way. And then they come back and almost always they've got a few tweaks. We'd rather have you write it this way. That includes how we list the active ingredients. So if you're seeing one that is ominous or doesn't list what's in it, like if it just says a blend and it doesn't say what the blend is, that might mean that it hasn't gone through the process of the other states. And that's not something that our company does. We don't put branded products out there with that type of vague label claim because it just doesn't work across all the states. 
And so I think products that you see across a national scale that are sold across the United States should have a more accurate description of what's in the product. The other thing I'll point out is we're not as familiar with the names of some of these products and there's multiple ways you can refer to them. And that's kind of another piece of confusion. We referred to a couple of different materials in the way that we commonly refer to them. And then the state of Oregon said, we would actually prefer you to look at this database and the cast numbers are, th are these, and we want you to call them like this, not the way you were calling them. And so it's, it just puts in two more seemingly new materials, but they're different descriptors for the same material. And that's kind of managed at the regulatory level. So really at the core of this, there isn't a widespread acceptance of terminology and regulation of this class of compounds that then allows for this ambiguity. And then you've got the state level's own differences there. And it sounds all of a sudden like the way we sort of handled the pandemic. It's like, okay, everybody's for themselves. Mm -hmm. We'll give you some guidance, but everybody's sort of for themselves. And since you brought it up, before we end this first segment here, I want to talk a little bit about what we've been avoiding, which is the actual chemical terms and then our colloquial, I don't know, bastardization. There's no other word to use in my sense, you know, holders, flushers, strippers, leechers. And so it allows for that more ambiguity. But let's start at the chemical technology, you know, understanding that the non-ionic block copolymers as the Danzas and Coscas and Bigelows of the world, Cesars of the world, would call them, make up a large component of the class of materials. So take a minute before you answer my question and refer to some of the key papers that you think superintendents interested in understanding the science of this should have on their shelf and should be able to read. Yeah, Dr. Stan Koska has done tremendous work trying to untangle some of this web over the over the years. And so the one I would point to is uh, in 2020, Dr. Mike Fidanza, Dr. Stan Koska, and Dr. Kale Bigelow published a review paper where they looked at all the wedding agent labels on the market as of 2019. So they found 192 products. 32 of those products didn't disclose the label's active ingredients at all. So like what you mentioned earlier, you, you can't tell what's in it. Uh, and then most of the products listed block copolymers as a chemical class or block copolymer blends with non-ionic surfactants. So we're seeing that the majority of products use block copolymers. And so why is that? It's because they work well. They're well proven. We know that those materials are very effective in reducing hydrophobicity or treating hydrophobic soils. Uh, so that would be, I think, the number one place I would look for understanding the lay of the land of different chemistry out there. So let's move to the chemistry now. You introduced, and I mentioned it, and you introduced it, non-ionic block copolymers. Let's break it apart. First off, chemically, these things are fatty acid-based materials, carbon-based materials. Tell me a little bit about the molecular structure of these compounds. Sure. So block copolymers have hydrophobic and hydrophilic nature, and so they're able to interact with soil organic matter, which is hydrophobic in nature. And the way that they interact with that allows water to get into the soil. So it kind of blocks the soil organic coatings that are creating the hydrophobicity, and that allows water to get into the soil. And these things are carbon-based. They break down. That's part of the way they work, right? You apply them. They have this function interacting with soil particles that have these organic coatings on them. They push one end of their molecule, is able to penetrate into that sort of coating that won't hold water, and then stick a tail of some other compounds out of there 
that the water is able to grab onto and then penetrate through into the, around that soil particle. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And then over time, they're they're degraded microbially. And so you'll see them wear off over time as they're degraded. Okay. It sounds pretty simple. Why do I need 142 different ways to do that? <laughs> you know, I'm just me here. Right. I mean, why do I need 142 different ways to do something like that? It's a good question. So I think I can't speak for other companies, right? So people have seen some synergy mixing block copolymers with other materials, whether it's APG surfactants or or other types of non-ionic surfactants. That's something that I think is an area of innovation. Now within that, there's probably still a lot of products that kind of do the same thing. So that's what we're trying trying to get at what's truly different or what actually is differentiating these products. Stan Koska has pointed out the number of newly patented or actually novel materials out there is, is pretty small. And so that's, I think, as an industry, we need to work towards, I think we, we understand the base chemistry really well and how block copolymers work, but we need to get to a, a level of what's next or what's truly new and different agronomically as well as just chemically. The plant food company of Cranberry, New Jersey, founded in 1944 by Edward Platts, began formulating liquid fertilizer in 1981 for the golf industry. I became familiar with them in the late 1990s when our research at the Bethpage State Park was being initiated and they immediately wanted to support our efforts to reduce pesticide use. We found their products to be cost-effective solutions to the nutrient management needs we established in our research. Other universities, such as Rutgers in New Jersey, found the plant food programs to be excellent solutions to anthracnose problems, performing equally to most fungicide programs. Don't take my word for it. Contact your local plant food rep and get more information. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm back with Glenn O'Beer, uh, Director of Research Development and Innovation with Exacto Incorporated, based in Wisconsin. And Glenn, uh, we did a good job early on, I think, of outlining some of the ambiguity that exists and some of the confusion that exists and some of where it emanates from and maybe some solutions there. But at the end of the day, superintendents are using these things for managing their soil water properties. And that's where I want to focus now because, you know, that's where they'll look in trade journals and say, you know, I watered this many times, didn't water that many times. Let's talk a little bit about the modes of action of some of these things. You know, we outlined it simply in the sense that you're using these things primarily for localized dry spot or soils that become water repellent. We associate that mostly with sands. But before I get into that, let's start at the soil type level. I've always maintained having finer particles and smaller pores sort of avoids some of these troubles, but I do hear people using these things on finer soils that aren't sandy. How do you determine, are these things strictly for hydrophobic conditions on sandy soils? There's my question. I think you get the most bang for your buck on sandy soils that exhibit hydrophobicity. That's where you see a visual effect. It's really clear what these products do and how and how they help manage those conditions. Beyond that, the ambiguities that we discussed earlier kind of highlight that uh, if the industry doesn't have a clear agreed upon terminology about how to talk about the products and what they do, and then we're getting into soils that, that don't have visual hydrophobic symptoms often, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not 
too well versed in this, but I know there have been studies about subcritical water repellency where it's not creating a large patch of localized dry spot, but uh, you can still have impacts on plant health and, and nutrient uptake and things like that. So there is really good science behind that. I think it's connecting that body of work with real life. Is there a benefit to using wetting agents on fairways and areas like that? I think a lot of it comes down to, at this point, it's it's a tool, right? These products are a tool. None of these products are a silver bullet that's going to change everything that you do, right? It, they just fit into a, a management program that a superintendent ascribes to or, or creates. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you use a product and you've clearly connected what it does to how you manage the turf and how you manage your irrigation, then that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. I think what's what's harder is if you've never used a product and then you only look at the label or you're only told by someone else, here's what it does. If you can't see what it's, you know, it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, or you, it doesn't clearly connect with how can I use it, then why are you using it, right? It should be something that you're comfortable with and you understand how it fits your program. And so, yeah, we're going to have fun with this topic because, uh, you know, what you're describing to me is the nuance at the end of the hose, so to speak. When I read the science and I see critical water content, I've always thought about that from old soil science terminology, that the soil dries to a certain point as a permanent wilting point. All the things we learn about water release and plant water availability There's this critical water content. We used to call it where the soil breaks. I think that's another colloquial term, but where you dried it down so much that now any water repellency that exists there is actually visible as a plant response. And that's probably where this subcritical thing, it's like it's always there, but you don't dry down enough to see it. So one of the things I often say to superintendents, I'd like some understanding, maybe what I'm saying is okay, What you described a second ago really speaks to, you better try this wetting agent on the soils you have and in the way you water. Because if you're one of those people, you know, you go to the desert where they, you know, they can really get firm, fast conditions. You know, you can a wetting agent allow me to move that critical water content point so I can dry down more before the visible symptoms of that localized dry spot are present? I'd say maybe. The way I would think about it actually is at any one spot, it doesn't move that critical water content, but across an entire fairway or green where you have some wet areas and some dry areas, and you're trying to manage it all with one irrigation system, the same you know irrigation head runtime, you know that some spots are going to dry out faster than other spots. And so if you can even things out more and create a more uniform moisture across the entire area that you're managing, you can dry everything down because you're not going to have as much variability. So I, I think that that's how I think of it okay. across a, a large area. It's, it's increasing the uniformity of moisture where because think about it if you have hydrophobic conditions and you you irrigate those areas are not getting wet that water is moving laterally to other areas that are getting more wet so every time we water it kind of exacerbates the issue if we can have even infiltration of water everywhere then we fix the issue well i'm not proposing either of these things because they're resource intensive or maybe technological advancements aren't there yet But are you suggesting that if we could map these areas and go out with a hose and a tab and drag it out there and hit that spot or have a spray rig that could hit those spots? You're just saying practically we can't we don't have that level of precision, Frank. But if we did, that's the way to manage an otherwise heterogeneous 
soil condition that all superintendents are dealing with. I don't think we're that far off from what you just said. I think it's a it's a really cool idea. And there are companies out there, Greenside Agronomics has a cool drone service that can go over the whole course and map the plant health. And I think we're just on the edge of where we'll be able to see things like soil moisture. You can see it from a uh, canopy temperature a little bit, but I know in the ag world, there's uh, ways that they can measure soil EC across the entire field, you know, not in the soil. So I think that mapping technology is is there. It's really on the front edge of where the, the challenge is you can make that really cool map. And then what do you do with it? What's the actionable, you know, recommendation from that? And I think it's all going to just come cascading together once we see, you know, GPS sprayers come on board. Mm-hmm. We already have precision nitrogen applications in ag that you just load in that map and then puts out nitrogen the way it needs it across the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, someday we'll have that for other inputs and wetting agents could be one of those. So if we know the areas that are hydrophobic, we can go out there and treat just those areas. And I don't think it's that far off. So what would you tell a superintendent who, you know, right now I look at, you know, labeled names, the traveling I get to do, you hear things like, Ores revolution. I heard primer back in the day. It was Lesco flow, uh, cascade, the old fashioned chemicals that used to burn. And then we found out if you burn them, if you burn annual bluegrass early, you suppress seed heads emergence, right? This was Randy Kane's old work in Illinois. Gosh, probably longer than you're alive. Uh, and so we've got all these products out there and companies put money into marketing. Salesmen are really good at working through with the superintendents. And that's really good because it should be that kind of one-on-one conversation that helps you develop it. But in your opinion, what is helping some of these products that enjoy better adoption, even though they might be on the pricey side, right? I mean, how does a superintendent, what is your opinion of the way superintendents are currently looking at adopting a wedding agent into their program on a widespread basis, like, you know, selling it for fairways and stuff like that. That's a big sale. What is your sense of of how this is working and why some products are more effective, are being uptaked more effective, even though they, they, the cost is more? I think some of the best companies out there provide really good customer service and really good uh, support that way. So as a superintendent, you'd rather buy from a company who has a sales rep that you know and trust and that uh, is going to be there to support you. If you see something weird after an application, you can call somebody and get support that way. Companies that are no nonsense with marketing and let the superintendent try it and and decide how it fits their program. I think that that goes a long way. I I think um, that the ones that you see that are really prominently used across the industry, that gives a level of confidence because you know, everybody's using this stuff. And so even if we know that that might be similar to a lot of other products at the end of the day, if, if I know that 30 other people in my area are using it, then I see why people are are drawn to that. There's a level of of confidence there. Mm -hmm. But, and I think it goes back to as wedding agent companies, if you do the research, if you work with universities, if you're open like that and, and you develop the products in the way that they need to be so that we can trust what the claims are, then I think that that's a good company to go with or a good product to go with. I can't let you go without asking you about innovation. It's the last part of your title. And, you know, in reviewing some of the literature, particularly the recent 2020 paper where they went through all these labels and everything, there were it was quite a bit of learning that I got uh, in this with regard to sort of the application of what this guy Decker in the Dune Sands has studied, right? And and is bringing into our you know John and Mike and Cal are bringing it into 
the turf industry, a stand bringing it into the turf industry. But one of the things that fascinated me is this idea of the way these things behave in the soil that sometimes as they break down, they can reactivate and redo some things. And sometimes they're involved in potentially uh, helping break down organic nitrogen that's sitting in there. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned earlier, there's not a lot of new innovation. These couple of things sound pretty neat. Can you take a second and talk a little bit about that innovation? Yeah, definitely. Those those are two examples of getting deeper into that onion and figuring out beyond just coating organic matter and helping with LDS, right? There's there's other plant health benefits that I think with more investigation and, and better science, we can dig into those. Um, there's other ones that that we've been studying over the over the years. Um, there's so much literature out there that that shows that block copolymer lighting agents don't increase soil moisture right in and of themselves. Um, and that's it makes sense when you look at the mode of action. You see higher soil moisture because you have better infiltration of water. Mm-hmm. But we're looking at other classes of polymers that have a much much higher molecular weight and actually could influence that critical moisture content because of the how they affect soil water holding capacity, basically. So mm-hmm. we've looked at some that can actually decrease hydraulic conductivity, which you might not want in a putting green, but in a, on a tea box that you don't want to be hand watering every day, if you can make that actually make that hold water or slow down infiltration rate in some cases, we're looking at chemistries that can do things like that. So that's a whole different mode of action than what we've discussed, right? It is. And as we make our way back up for air (laughs) from the deep dive, (laughs) I want to bring us all the way up, get our head above the water and talk about the things that I, and I'm sure you hear from superintendents who say, Hey, I use that thing. It's holding water at the top. Hey, I use this thing. It moves the water down the middle. Hey, I use this thing. My greens get softer. Hey, I use this thing. I get worse ball marks. I want to get right at this. How come I can't find any science where guys like us, Bill, Doug, Cal, all these guys who study Karcher, all these people who study these things, I don't see the validation in science for what I know these superintendents really intuitively notice because they pay attention to the way the ball responds with the surface. So can you talk to me a little bit about that disconnect between, you know, what superintendents are seeing and why science isn't showing anything? Yeah. So it's kind of, we we have to get from the empirical, it seems like it's doing this to a quantifiable, here's how I can measure that. Right. And so I think people have done that. They've tried to with the Clegg meter, they've looked at ball roll distance and a lot of the trials have not shown many differences. Right. So I, I think that's, it kind of starts to separate into things that we can measure and firmly prove and all the studies will show that. And then things where we have to be careful about confirmation bias, which means no matter what I do, ball roll is going to change, right? It's either going to get faster or slower, no matter what you do, nothing, no matter what you do. And then if I'm spending money and time and effort and I put a product out and I think it's supposed to help with ball roll distance and then ball roll distance does improve, then it seems like it was from the product, right? (laughs) But then we're, I'm just saying we have to be careful about that. And that's where in an area where the research hasn't shown what, I think a lot of people are seeing that's the thing we have to watch out for. So on the research side, we need to continue to to do practical and research that actually that means something to how superintendents manage the course every day. That's right. And then on the product side, we have to to listen to that research too and and understand that we shouldn't be making a claim like that. You'll notice a lot those labels don't say 
moves water to three inches deep and holds it there. Like the, they don't say that on the label. They're not providing that efficacy data with that submission. So it's right. that's a whole set of studies that would be really, really neat and cool to do and needs to be looked at further is uh, what is the distribution by depth of, of water content and these different products? How do they affect that? I do think that there's something there, but it's complicated. Yeah. And I want to wrap it up with the conversation I had recently with Dan Danelli about firmness, where he was suggesting that the potential use of wetting agents may be influencing soil strength in some ways that then impacts the way the ball hits. And this is a good example of, you know, ball roll probably is not the best measure for any kind of wedding agent thing. You better be looking at firmness and then Dan saying, well, we dropped the thing straight, but the ball doesn't come straight. What do we do on an angle? I don't want to go down that wormhole yet because I don't even know how to ask a question yet. I know we can play around with it. What do you know about how these things may be impacting soil physical properties? I still think at the end of the day, Soil water is going to be the biggest uh, determination of of how a soil behaves, and I think wetting agents just help us manage that whole system. But outside of, I know there there are some polymers, some that we've worked with in, in agriculture, even that uh, are, they actually are designed for soil erosion control that actually can hold so, uh, soil structure together more firmly because they physically coat the entire particle. So there are materials like that at the vast majority, if not all of the wetting agents that we see out there are not positioned that way. So like a glue kind of, yeah. I mean, exactly. Right. And mm. there's some that they use for canal sealing. I mean, you can, depending on the chemistry. So, uh, we obviously don't want to go that far, but no. I think for, from a practical standpoint on a sand-based putting green, any wetting agent we put down, is probably not affecting what's happening on that sand. Sand doesn't really have structure. Right. So I think it's all about moisture content. And I like that idea of, of soil strength. I think that's a engineering mindset and a way to, to quantify. It's not just because it's dry. When it's dry, it also is more resistant to, to compression or something like that. I think there's something to that. That's right. And while our conversation has been primarily focused on understanding this technology, one of the, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in the middle of the room is water's going to be our biggest challenge over the next. I mean, we've been saying water's going to be the biggest challenge for our next. Mm -hmm. I remember 30 years ago when we said water was our biggest challenge. And I think the closer and closer we get to growing population and scarcity, the uh, uniform and efficient use of water, uh, application and use of water is going to be even more intense. Let's hope we figure out this wedding agent stuff, Glenn, before that critical point where, man, we, we really need to know where I can hold it and where I can drain it, how it's going to affect performance and how it's going to affect my water bill. So thanks very much, Glenn, for taking the time to join me. What a great chat. I'm glad I poked at you uh, that night at the WTA and, and all the best to you guys in Cheese State. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Wisconsin's own Glenn O'Beer, Director of Research, Development, and Innovation for Exacto Incorporated, based in Wisconsin. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, and the Plant Food Company, providing nutrient management solutions to the golf course superintendent for 40 years. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Once again, big thanks to Glenn O'Beer for taking the time to chat. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management John Kiger and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.